All right, good morning, Four Oaks. Pastor Paul, the lead pastor here, so glad that you have joined us. I'm going to invite you to open your Bibles to Matthew chapter 4 as we continue our series through Matthew's gospel. It was about five or six years ago that my dad, who lives in Chattanooga, and my son, Jack, and myself, uh, three generations, fine generations of Gilbert men, right? We went on the Holy Land tour with the Four Oaks um, group. And, and by the way, before I get going on that, we are taking another Four Oaks trip that's going to be coming up in October of this year, the footsteps of the Apostle Paul to trip to Greece and Turkey, kind of retracing some of uh, the Apostle Paul's missionary journeys and putting sights and sounds and locations with the Word of God. We have 35 people or so signed up right now, a few spots left. If you're interested, stop by the hub, Phil Swartz, who's the Robinson Crusoe of our trip. But it didn't end so well for Robinson. Anyway, they got shipwrecked. Whatever, that's not a good analogy, but Phil's organizing the trip. Stop by and see him, and he'll let you know more about that. But let me go back to the story. When we were on, when we do these trips, it's, it's always like a question of how do we keep everybody up to speed on everything that we are seeing and doing while we're gone? And so a lot of times I'll call my wife Susan at the end of the, a day of touring, and I'll sort of download the day. Phil will do a blog side and post, and he'll try to keep everybody up to speed. Of course, Steve Curio is, is posting incessantly on Facebook and Instagram to keep everybody in the loop. Yet, no matter what, sorry, Steve, but no matter what we do, right, no matter how much we, 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 we do that, it's impossible, unless you're there, to sort of absorb every single thing that is happening, every detail, every convo, every site. So what do we end up doing? We curate the most important things, hopefully, and choose to share those. Now, if you understand that idea, you'll understand what we have in the Gospels. The Gospels are not exhaustive. They don't, they're, 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 not a, they're not a detailed biography of every aspect of Christ's life and ministry. What is in there has been curated, has been chosen by the Gospel writers under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit for a very specific purpose. Now, this is not something I realized until I started studying this passage, and this is something the commentaries noted, but when you look throughout the Gospels, and particularly Matthew's Gospel, almost every scene or thing that's recorded in Matthew's Gospel is attested to by multiple eyewitnesses. Hey, whether it's the teachings, the healings, the baptism, the cross, the crucifixion, the resurrection, these are all sources that Matthew used to compile his account. And of course, Matthew himself was an eyewitness. But there's one story in particular that does not fall into that category. No one was there except Jesus. And that's what we have in Matthew chapter 4. And we have to ask, well, if Matthew wasn't there and no one was there to, to record this, how did they know about this story of just Jesus being led into the wilderness to be tempted by Satan? Well, the answer is obvious, right? Jesus told them. And of all the things that Jesus could have told them about his life in ministry, all the things growing up, all the things happening here or there or everywhere, the fact that Jesus chose this particular story I think we're going to find is really, really important. And we have to ask, why would Jesus do this? Why, why this story? Now, as we're going to see, there's some heady doctrinal theological stuff happening in this passage, and we're going to talk about them. 
But this is one of the things that I, I so appreciate about the Word of God. Not only does it, does, does it exist up here in exalting the truths of God and the greatest realities in the history of the universe and the gospel and doctrinal and theological truth, but, but the Bible is concerned about the most intimate details of our life, about where we are right here, right now, today. And I think this is particularly true when it comes to the issue of temptations. If I were to sit down with coffee with each and every one of you and we were to like be halfway transparent and like, how are you doing and how am I doing? And we didn't just say fine, but we actually got under the surface. Invariably, I, I think for every one of us, the conversation would turn around at some point to some sort of struggle we're having, some sort of besetting sin, some sort of temptation that we are facing in our lives, whether it has to do with lust or anxiety or money or relationships, something that's sort of tearing at the fabric of our souls. And Jesus this morning wants to teach us something about temptation. And, and we want to learn at the feet of the master. We want to learn at the one who has gone before us who has perfectly resisted temptation and fulfilled the promises of God in his life to give us a path forward in our own spiritual lives. And so this morning, temptation deconstructed. That's where we're going from Matthew chapter 4, verses 1 through 11. I'm going to invite you to stand as we read God's word together. Hear the word of the Lord for Oaks. Then Jesus was led up by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. And after fasting 40 days and 40 nights, he was hungry. And the tempter came and said to him, If you are the Son of God, command these stones to become loaves of bread. But he answered, It is written, Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. Then the devil took him to the holy city and set him on the pinnacle of the temple and said to him, if you are the son of God, throw yourself down for it is written, he will command his angels concerning you and on their hands, they will bear you up lest you strike your foot against the stone. Jesus said to him again, it is written, you shall not put the Lord, your God to the test. Again, the devil took him to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their glory. And he said to him, all these I will give you if you will fall down and worship me. Then Jesus said to him, be gone, Satan, for it is written, you shall worship the Lord your God and him only shall you serve. Then the devil left him and behold, angels came and were ministering to him. Let's pray. Father, I just want to pray for the Four Oaks family this morning. Lord, all of us are wrestling with some sort of issue, sin, struggle, temptation in our lives. And, and on one level, we're thankful for that. It's an indication your Holy Spirit lives within us and is conforming us to your image. But Lord, we just want to come before you as your people and say, we're, we're weak. We're, we're full of mixed motives and sin. We, we struggle. Father, we really need your help. And so, Father, pray that you would open our eyes to your word 
speak to us through it, through the example of your son, Jesus Christ. It's in his name that we pray. Amen. Please take your seats. I want to say three things about temptation this morning. First of all, we're going to talk about temptation defined. What is it? What do we, what do we mean when we talk about this idea of being tempted? Then we're going to, then we're going to spend the bulk of our time in temptation demonstrated. What, what do we learn from Jesus in the way that he engages Satan in his personal temptations? And then finally, temptations defeated, which may not be what you think it means, but you're going to have to sit through the whole sermon to get there, all right? So hopefully we can, we can manage that. Let's look at temptation defined. Look at verse 1. It says, Jesus was led up by the Spirit into the wilderness. That word led is a very intentional word. It's a strong word. It's not a passive word. It's an active word. In fact, Mark uses an even stronger word in his gospel when he says that Jesus was literally driven into the wilderness by the Spirit. So this is no accident. Um, This is, the wilderness is, is not the place you would want to go and hang out, right? If the wilderness was so awesome, everyone would be living there. No one was living there except the crazy people. So why in the world would God want Jesus to go into the wilderness. It's very clear. It's up front. It's not ambiguous. To be tempted by Satan, which should get our attention because we've always been taught to view temptation as a bad thing, something to be resisted. After all, Matthew in the Sermon on the Mount is going to talk to us about the Lord's Prayer. And what do we say in the Lord's Prayer? Lead us not into temptation. So isn't temptation, Pastor Paul, a bad thing? Shouldn't we resist it? Why would God be leading Jesus into the wilderness to be tempted by Satan? We can understand, I think, this better by understanding the the word that is used here for for tempted. Pi, rad, so. Kind of sounds like Pizza Hut. Pi, rad, so. And it's it's actually a neutral word. Okay, it can have either a positive connotation or a negative connotation. Positively, it can mean to test. And by that, what we mean is to, to find out the strength of something. What is something made of? What's its durability? What's the essence of the thing? Or negatively, it can mean to tempt, to lead astray, to lead towards sin. And oftentimes it means both of those things at the same time, depending upon the perspective one has on what is happening. Let let me give you a couple of examples, and then let me try to show how I think this is true from the Word of God. So Job is living a righteous life, not a sinless life, but a righteous life. He's following God. Satan comes to God and says, the only reason Job is following you is because you give him everything. You take away some of that stuff, God, and Job is going to to curse you. And so what does God do? He gives permission for Satan to go take everything away from Job. Just don't kill him. And, And essentially, what Job is facing is a test. Will he curse God? Will he trust God? God says, I think he will. Well, Satan says, no, I think he won't. I think that he will yield to temptation. So the same event, 
from one perspective, from God's perspective, it's a testing. From Satan's perspective, it's a temptation. Same thing with the garden with Adam and Eve. They were given a charge. They said, you can do anything you want to in this garden. Just don't eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. What was God doing? He was testing them. Will you trust me? Will you obey me? What did Satan do? He wanted to tempt them to not trust God, to disobey God. And of course, we know in each of those, in, in their circumstance, they failed the test. So here's, here's the first thing to understand here. God tests, God never tempts. All right, where do we get that? Look at James chapter one. Let no one say when he is tempted, I'm being tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted with evil and he himself tempts no one. But each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. Then desire, when it has conceived, gives birth to sin. And sin, when it is fully grown, gives birth to death. Okay, once more, what God designs as a test, Satan uses as an opportunity to tempt into evil. Let me say it another way. What Satan designs as a temptation, God wants to use to strengthen and sharpen the faith of the Christian, your faith to reveal the nature of your heart, right? Now, what does this have to do with Jesus's temptations? Well, if you're, if you're a Christian Jew, which is the original readers of Matthew's gospel, and they read about Jesus being led into the wilderness and being there for 40 days, they, even if they had skipped Torah class growing up, right, they would have immediately known, oh, this is kind of like the Israelites, The Israelites were led into the wilderness. They wandered around 40 days, not 40 days, but 40 years, as they were what? Being tested by God. Now listen to what Deuteronomy 8.2 says. And you shall remember the whole way that the Lord has, your God has led you these 40 years in the wilderness that he might humble you, how? Testing you to know what was in your heart, whether you would keep his commandments or not. So what happened to the Israelites? What God intended as a test, they failed miserably because they yielded to temptation, to idolatry, to unbelief. So here's the importance of what's happening in this text. Jesus has just been coronated. We saw that in his baptism. He has been set aside as the perfect, sinless substitute, the Lamb of God, the Son of God who takes away the sin of the world. He has come to live the righteous life we could not live. And as if on cue, Satan says, prove it. Prove it. If he really is the Son of God, if you really are, then, then, then you'll, you'll faithfully complete the test. But if not, it's just a ruse. It's a farce. You're just another prophet. You're just another moral teacher. Do you you see what's at stake here? In order for all the righteous requirements of the law to be met, and you've heard me say this before, Jesus didn't, didn't just die for us. He also lived for us. He was the second Adam. He was our representative. And it's if, if, if in chapter four, Matthew says, into the ring steps Jesus. 
Adam and Eve failed. Israel failed. Everyone failed in the Old Testament. But will Jesus succeed where we could not? So the stakes could not be higher. And Satan knows it. Now, now one quick application point before we go on to this to the second thing here. I think this should help us to begin to reframe some of the quote-unquote negative things that God brings into our life. So when we think about suffering, when we think about hardship, when we think about difficulties, our, our immediate interpretation of those is, that's bad. If, if my life was just free of those things, everything would be much better. But, but that's not what God's word says. God's word says those he disciplines, he what? Loves. And that when God sovereignly, providentially leads you into the wilderness, and understand if you are in the wilderness, God is sovereign over that. He's in control of that. He has led you into that. Not so that you could sin, but so that you could be tested, refined, sanctified. Listen to what Romans 5 says about that. Not only that, and what crazy person talks this way, but we rejoice in our sufferings. Knowing that suffering produces endurance, and endurance produces character, and character produces hope. So before we leave this point, some of us, before, we, before we're going to dive into and, and understand the, the dynamics of temptation, we need to have a massive reframe about what's going on in our life. That what's happening under God's supernatural sovereign hand is he loves you. And he wants to refine you. He wants to sanctify you. He wants to change you. He wants to see what you're made of, not so that he can judge you, but so that he can change you, so that he can comfort you, that he can fill you, that he can mold you into his, into his image. So that's temptation defined. Now, let's spend the bulk of our time in this middle part, temptation demonstrated. What we have here are three tests or temptations that Jesus faces that in some way parallel the temptations that the Israelites faced in the wilderness 1,500 years before that, okay? So Israel failed their test miserably. We're going to look at these one at a time, and we, what we want to ask is, first of all, how did Israel do? The answer is simple. They failed, okay? Number two, how did Jesus do? That's also simple. He rocked, okay? He did great. And three, what do we learn from this? Okay, that, that, that's, that's how we're going to approach this. Okay, the first temptation involves bread and stones. Jesus approaches, um, Satan approaches Jesus and said, he's hungry after 40 days of fasting. And he says, listen, if, you're the, if you are the son of God, see the test there? Change these stones into bread. Now, think back to Israel what does this kind of sound like? Well, it kind of sounds like when Israel was led out of Egypt into the wilderness, they couldn't take a ton of food. There was no food in the wilderness. And so after a while, the Israelites ran out of food. And do you remember what the Israelites did? They were just so content and happy, right? No, 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 no. They grumbled. They said, it's so bad out here, Moses. Take us back to Egypt. 
Take us back to Egypt. They grumbled, they complained. Now, Jesus, it says, was out fasting in the wilderness. And understand, every Jew would know, fasting was a spiritual discipline well known to them. Well known to the people of the Old Testament. It was meant to be a time where one would set, be set apart to the Lord to pray, to prepare, to meditate, to be in communion. And what we see here is that right at the onset of Jesus's ministry, remember he's been coronated and he's about to embark on three years of very public, strenuous ministry. He is not going into the fray defenseless. God says, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to call you to something that we as Americans would think is inefficient, such a waste of time. We could be so productive with these 40 days. Think of all the things that we could do. But he says, Jesus, I want you to be set aside before me in preparation, in prayer, in meditation. And understand this is part of God's design. God leads Jesus to fast for 40 days. This is part of God's design to prepare him. And here's the test. Ready? Here's the test. Will you, okay, to, to the Israelites, or to Jesus, sorry, will you trust God to feed you when he knows you need to be fed? God says to fast, no food. Now, will you be patient and wait on God to give you what you need. That's the test. Here's the temptation. What does Satan say? What's he essentially saying? Jesus, this is way beneath you. This is way below your pay grade. You are the son of God. This, this fasting thing is entirely unnecessary. You created the food. Remember, you're going to feed 5,000 here shortly. Why go hungry? How easy it would be, Jesus, just to take matters into your own hands. Guys, some of us are facing temptations this morning where we are being tempted to not trust in the provision of God. We're being tempted not to not trust his timing. We're being tempted to not trust the way his grace is going to flow into our lives. We're being, we're being tempted to not wait to take matters in our own hands, whether it's in your marriage or money or job or relationship. Maybe like me, you're getting ready to file your taxes for this coming year. And you are just so tempted, aren't you? No one will ever know. To which Jesus says, what? Deuteronomy 8.3, that's where he quotes from. Man will not live by bread alone. What is Jesus saying to us? He's saying our spiritual calculus when it comes to temptation, it has to exceed the immediacy of whatever it is that we have right in front of us. It, it has to take into account that maybe, just maybe, we don't know what's best for ourselves. Maybe, just maybe, God has an exceedingly amazing, abundant provision 
that by simply taking matters into our own hands are forever short-circuited in that particular circumstance. The temptation before Jesus is the temptation we all face. Am I going to trust in God's provision, in his timing? God, I've, I've, I've wanted to be married so long. And look, this, this, this person, I know they're not a believer. I know they don't walk with you. But you said marriage is good. We are all tempted in some way to turn the stones into bread, to circumvent the provision of God. Let's look at the second temptation. And in many ways, it's sort of the counterpart to the first. If the first temptation asks you to distrust God's provision, the second temptation asks you to presume upon his provision. All right, so let's look at, look at the situation. It says that Satan takes Jesus, they're transported in, in some way to the pinnacle of the temple. Now, if you've visited the Holy Land, you know that the temple mount, um, the, the, the eastern section extends over into the Kidron Valley. And it's hundreds of feet high. So in its day, this would have been a glorious precipice, Okay. This is, you would have had the temple mount and then the temple built and then the, the pinnacle of the temple extends over the Kidron Valley. By the way, this is where church history says that James was pushed off and martyred for his faith. And apparently, this is where they are. And the devil, it's kind of like one of those, not just dare, but I double dare you, right? Just, just, just take a leap, Jesus, just cast yourself down. See if God will save you. Now, what is the essence of this temptation? What is, what is essentially Jesus being tempted to do? Understand, Jesus is languishing in the wilderness, okay? He's hungry, he's tired, he's thirsty. It would have been very tempting, like many of us, to think, you know what? God has gone radio silent. It is spiritual crickets in here. God has abandoned me. God is not speaking to me. God has forgotten me. And essentially, Satan is saying, look, Jesus, you've been languishing out here for, for 40 days. You can be done with this. If you're not willing to, to turn the stones into bread, throw yourself off the temple. You know God will save you. You know he will. And, 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 and by saving you, he'll take you out of that nasty, dirty, dark wilderness. You do not need to be there one second longer. Do you see how test, temptation oftentimes kind of calcifies itself in our hearts as entitlement, as in, as in privilege? I, 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 well, I'm above this. I should be in a different place in my life. This should not be happening. That should be happening. And I, in order to give God a nudge, right, I'm going to do something that will presume upon his grace. Now, interestingly, Satan is no dummy, and he fights fire with fire. So what does Satan do? He quotes Scripture. He quotes Scripture in, from Psalm 91 about casting yourself down and God's angels will 
rescue you. Now, you've heard me say this many times, old seminary prof, you can quote scripture and commit heresy. The most, some of the most dangerous temptations, church, are the ones that come with scripture verses attached to them. When we wrongly understand what God's word is saying, because we don't have a a command of the word of God, we have sort of what I call a post-it sticker note, prayer of the day thing we stick on our mirror, which those things are great, keep on doing them, right? You just need more than that for your daily digestion of God's word. And it's taking something out of context, and it's presuming upon that, oh, you know, talking to the young man, hey, you know, it's probably a good idea that you kind of move out and like get a job, right? And oh, well, you know, but Pastor Paul, God, God says he will supply all of my needs, right? So I'm just going to hang out here and not really do much. Well, well, what's wrong with that? Well, Paul makes it very clear, if you don't work, what? You don't eat, And it forgets that sometimes the way God um, displays his grace to us is through means, through various things. I don't need a doctor. I don't need a, you know, because God's going to heal me. God's going to do miraculous things. We're going to get in this chapter, these teachings in Matthew and see God, Jesus doing miraculous healing after miraculous healing. (coughs) Excuse me. And if we wrongly rich those things from their biblical context, we can wreak great destruction and havoc on our own lives. We can presume upon God's grace. Here's what the Israelites did. God says, you know what? You missed this window of going to the promised land. I'm gonna, I want you to stay here in the promised land for 40 more years. And I'm gonna test you and teach you and conform you. Then you'll be ready. And so what did, Israelite, what did the Israelites do? They said, wait a minute. God said he wanted us to go to the promised land. We don't need to wait 40 years. Let's go now. And what happened? They were catastrophically wiped out because they presumed upon the grace of God. Church, one of the things that, that we as evangelicals will be mightily tempted to is not understanding how to relate the whole counsel of God's word together. How to, how, to, how to bring these things before the brothers. That's why we need relationships. It's why we need Bible study. It's why we need community groups. It's why you need people to work out these things with fear and trembling. To say, you know what? I, th- this is a decision I'm facing. And I'm thinking about this and I'm thinking about that. And I want to measure this by the wisdom and the word of God. I don't want to presume upon his grace. I don't want to just leap off the, the cliff and presume that God's going to cover, his love's going to cover over a multitude of sin, right? As we go splat on the ground. His love does cover over a multitude of sins. But boy, there is wisdom in a multitude of counselors, Proverbs tells us. This was the temptation for Jesus. It's the temptation we face. And what does Jesus do? Again, he goes right to God's word. He quotes from Deuteronomy 6. Isn't it interesting, by the way, that all of these verses and texts that Jesus 
is using to combat these temptations, they all come from this one section of Deuteronomy. It's almost as if Jesus had it memorized. Isn't that interesting? Jesus did not have his scroll in the desert. Jesus, how did Jesus learn the word of God? Now, this is hard for us to wrap our minds around. You say, well, he's God. He wrote, Jesus was a man. He was God, but he was a man, particularly in this circumstance, if you can say that theologically. Where did Jesus learn the scriptures? Torah school, his parents. He was in the temple, what? Asking the teachers of the law, what? Questions. So, so this temptation stuff, to be grounded in the word of God, it takes time. This is not microwavable. This, this, this takes almost like a lifetime of study, right? And reflection and walking in wisdom among the brothers and sisters that God has given us. Okay, third temptation, last one. Jesus is taken to the top of a great mountain and shown a panorama of the world's kingdoms. Now, if you go to Israel, they'll say, well, that's the Mount of Temptation. That's probably not true. That's their way of getting your American dollar, right? It's, it's, this is probably, I mean, it's probably a vision. I mean, there's, you know, we don't know. But the whole point, that's not the point. The point is that Satan offers it all to Jesus if Jesus will only worship him. And now this raises several questions for us, or it should. Number one, doesn't all this belong to God anyway? Number one. Number two, is this Satan's really to give? This is important to understand. Okay. While the earth is the Lord's and everything in it, Psalm 24, we know from John 12, we know from 2 Corinthians 4, Ephesians 6, that in fact the devil is the God of this world. He's the ruler of the prince of the power of the air. And as such, please hear this, he's been given temporary authority to wreak havoc on the earth. It's all under God's providence. It's never out. He's always on a leash. But his agenda is always the same. Don't worship God. Worship me. And of course, this is, now, it never comes, it's always much more subtle than that. But please understand, th those are really the only two options, right? If you're not worshiping God, you're worshiping something. By the way, that's the essence of idolatry. Guys, all idolatry, all sin is idolatry of something. And typically, it's a good gift that God has said, whether it's sex or money or relationships or family, that it's a good thing that we take and make the ultimate thing, and then it becomes a very corruptible thing, a very destructive thing. And that's what's happening in this text. So, so, so where do we see this test for the Israelites? Of course, the most obvious one is when Moses goes up to the mountains, mountaintop, to receive the Ten Commandments from God. And what is the first commandment of the law? You shall have no other gods before me. Now, now think about the juxtaposition of this. While Moses is receiving the law, the Israelites are down in the valley breaking it, right? They're, they're worshiping the golden calf, Moses smashes the commandments, and you know part of that story. The whole point is that Israel failed this test. 
Now, what is really happening here when Satan is offering the kingdoms of the world to Jesus? What, what, is, what is that about? I think to understand this, you have to understand the nature of Jesus's messianic mission. One of the things that we're going to see, and we've already begun to see in Matthew, is that when Jesus says the kingdom of God is at hand, he is not talking about a political kingdom. He says, I'm not, I'm not coming to overthrow the Roman oppressors. Guys, this is a great lesson for us as Americans, right? Your salvation is not found ultimately in political kingdom realities. I did not come here to rescue you physically. I came here to establish a spiritual kingdom in your heart. That's the whole point of the ministry of Jesus in Matthew. But how was that going to happen? How was that going to happen? How would Jesus conquer sin and death? It wasn't by physical conquest, was it? It wasn't by conquering kingdoms. It was by dying a death on the cross. So what is Satan really tempting Jesus with here? Come on, Jesus. The Son of God doesn't need to die. The Son of God, you were made to rule, right? And again, takes a scriptural idea that the earth is the Lord's, that Jesus will be reigning forever and ever, that he's the king of kings. Satan was really, at its very heart, trying to deter Jesus from his messianic mission, don't die. Because he knew that if Jesus did not die, the triune reality of the Godhead would be turned upside down. That the, the, the plan of salvation would be forever ruined. This would be the greatest of all sins, and hear this, with the greatest of all consequences. And what does Jesus say? Satan, be gone. You shall worship the Lord your God and serve him only. Guys, that is the crucible for every temptation. At its bottom, at its deepest level, when we begin to get curious about our temptations, why, why do I desire that? Why am I wanting to do this? Why am I not wanting to do that? That can be a temptation too. And if we're curious and we begin to ask ourselves those questions, and take it down a level and down a level and down a level, fundamentally, what we're going to find at the bottom of every temptation is God. Do I trust him? Do I believe him? Will I follow him? Will I obey him? Even if it seems that's not the thing to do. Now, before we leave this, this second big point, let me say this. It's very obvious that Jesus has a command of the scriptures that he's using that to combat Satan. But I want to put a little finer point on that and just note a couple of things that I think will be helpful for all of us as we combat temptation with the word of God. Please, number one, understand this. Jesus is not passive, Okay. Jesus doesn't ponder the temptation. Hmm. Well, it depends on what kind of kingdom you're talking about, right? 
What kind of bread? You know, I mean, there, there are certain kinds of bread that I think would be sinful, but there's other kinds of, and, you know, and we, we, we sort of get into that, into that internal debate. Or we just like, you know, if I just kind of leave this temptation alone, it'll kind of resolve itself, right? As the light on the dashboard blinks on and off and our car is running out of oil. There is nothing about Jesus that's passive here. He clings immediately to the word of God. Sin does not even have a chance to set up shop. But there's another thing I want you to notice about this. Not only is Jesus not passive, he's not anxious. And this is a great encouragement to the OCD fellow sufferers in here like me. Because a lot of times, let's be honest, we can get really neurotic about our temptations. There, 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 there can be such a wrong energy and vigilance around them, such, so much like, I will not think, I will not taste, I will not touch, right? Hear no evil, see no evil. And what happens a lot of times when we get neurotic about our temptations? Guess what we end up doing? Sinning, right? The very thing we don't want to do, we do. Because never here does Jesus fixate on the temptation. He just fixates on God and fixates on his word. He is proactive. He is trusting. He is focused. And he dismisses Satan. This is the last point. This will be brief. Temptation defeated. Because when it says, be gone, Satan, this is not just like you're having coffee with someone, you can always tell when they're done, right? Well, you know, I hope to see, you know, that you, 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 you can feel that coming. That's not what's happening here. This is not some gradual transition. This is the drop the mic, I'm terminating the interview. Satan, you are being dismissed, okay? Satan leaves him, the angels comes in. But you know what's interesting about this? This is not the last time that Satan tempts Jesus. This, this is not the last temptation of Jesus. See, there are several strategic moments where this very same temptation rears its head. Peter says, Jesus, you are not going to Jerusalem. That is not happening. And what does he say? Get behind me. Satan. They're in the garden. The, the troops have come to arrest Jesus to take him away to be crucified. And what does he tell? It's interesting. Peter's always at the bottom of all these things, right? So he's like, Peter, don't you know? Get your sword. Put your sword away. Don't you know I could call down the angels right now? But he doesn't. When he's on the cross, what do they say? If he truly is the son of God, the king of the Jews, come on down off that cross. The reason that temptation is ultimately defeated is not because of how faithful and obedient you are. It's because of how faithful and obedient Jesus was. That he was faithful to the very end. You know, a lot of times we ask questions like, is it possible that, could, that Jesus could have sinned? That's an interesting question, right? The short answer is no. It's not possible. He is the son of God. And be comforted by that, by the way, that, that your eternal salvation was not 
hinging upon a mere human choice. But that doesn't, please understand something, that doesn't mean that Jesus' temptation was any less real. Just because you resist temptation doesn't mean the temptation wasn't real. This was very real. Because reminder what Hebrews 4 tells us. Since then we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus the Son of God. Let us hold fast our confession. Now here's the money verse. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weakness, says, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are. Do you realize whatever you're wrestling with today, Jesus has faced that temptation in some form or fashion at its very root? Jesus has faced it. It wasn't an illusion. It wasn't a myth, but yet without sin. And because of that, and this is such a great call for us as we come to the table this morning, let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Are you struggling with temptation this morning? Are you, are you a, a wandering soul? Are, are you maybe just hours, minutes ago? You found yourself yielding to that same old struggle. Jesus says, draw near to me and you will find mercy and grace in your time of need because I have done for you what you could not do for yourself. Church, let's meditate upon that as we prepare our hearts to come to the table. So just ask you to bow your head. Spend the next minute or so just reflecting on this message, reflecting on this word. I'm going to ask our leaders to come forward, prepare to serve the elements.